Nazi Germany stands out in history as a horrific and grisly reminder of the depths of depravity that humanity can reach. The Second World War was the largest and deadliest conflict in history, with total worldwide deaths estimated between at least 65 to 85 million people, which amounted to about 3 to 3.7% of the world's population at that time. Accurate numbers are hard to estimate though, but during the course of the, the war, over 100 million combatants entered the fray and there would be at least another 15 million who would not return home and more than 25 million who would be wounded in battle. Add to this the number of civilians who would lose their lives due to collateral damage or famine or disease and the statistics are just staggering. The Soviet Union alone lost about 20 to 27 million people accounting for almost 15% almost of their population at that time. China lost 15 to 20 million people. Germany, 6 to 7.4 million. Poland, 5.9 to 6 million, which was about 16% of their population. And with the Dutch East Indies and Indonesia, Japan, India, Yugoslavia, and other nations also suffered very heavy casualties. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at eight lessons that Christians must learn from Nazi Germany. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. Those numbers of casualties from World War II boggle the mind. As numbers so high are often beyond our comprehension, they start to just become numbers, losing, and we lose sight of their humanity, that those numbers actually represent people. We forget that you know, behind each one of those numbers was a human soul, an individual just like us with families and friends and hobbies and personality quirks. Yet perhaps more puzzling is the task of trying to fathom why a nation like Germany would lead the world to such a devastating conflict and furthermore, how do we comprehend the deplorable and inhumane acts the Nazis would commit against other people? In this particular episode, we're going to be looking at how is it that a nation like Germany ended up in a totalitarian dictatorship under Hitler? And what were the factors that led up to that? As part of a deliberate program of extermination, the Nazis systematically killed over 11 million people, including 6 million Jews. In German, the term, and I'm going to get one of my German friends to actually help me out with this, it's called Lebensunwertes Leben. All right, awesome. That was my friend Constantine. Thanks, brother. Uh, that term meant unworthy of life, and it was a Nazi de designation for the segments of the populace that they determined had no right to live. Viktor Frankl, a Jewish Holocaust survivor, once noted, the gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. I'm absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Medanek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or, or other of Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. It was said that in the 19th century, that God is dead. By the 20th century, it seems like man would soon die too. With God dead, men became untamed beasts. So, how did our world get to such a depraved state? 
And could this happen again? Is it happening again? I believe that there are some very important lessons we must learn from Nazi Germany if we're going to avoid another round of exploring just how deep the human depravity can go. A really great book and one which I'll be drawing a lot for um, offer from this episode is, is the book called When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Lessons We Must Learn from Nazi Germany. It's by Erwin W. Lutzer. Again, that's When a Nation Forgets God by Erwin Lutzer. And I encourage you to pick up a, a copy and read it. The links will be in the description for this episode. Now, many today are incredulous about the prospect that our world could ever return to such a barbarous state as Nazi Germany. And I'm not seeking to be alarmist in this episode, nor am I saying that what we're going through is exactly like pre-Nazi Germany. However, we must learn from history and seriously consider some of the warning signs from the past to look at our present with sobriety. The nature of totalitarianism is always hidden and crouched in the language of morality, progress, and liberty. It's not like, you know, totalitarians of the past were like, hey, look at me, I'm a totalitarian, I want to be a dictator in your life. I mean, although we do have clips from Trudeau saying that he uh, admires China's basic dictatorship. That's another story. It's like what George Orwell wrote in his novel on Animal Farm where slavery is usually defined as freedom and suppression is defined as the quest for equality and fairness. But of course, some animals are more equal than others. By the way, if you've not read an oral dystopian novel yet, you should. And there's a lot of relevance for us today from those novels. Go pick one up. Now, many who are in or heading towards totalitarian states don't realize it until it's too late because it comes incrementally. They push you an inch at a time until you give a little resistance, and then they stop and wait for a bit. Then they push you again a few more inches, until you resist, then they stop and wait for a bit, and repeat the process over and over. Before you know it, you're a mile into a gulag because nowhere in that process did they regress. They just stopped and held where they had pushed you, and nowhere in that process did you push back. This is what many of today's conservatives actually do. They just hold a line at the point where the liberals have pushed it. And this is why today's conservatives are really usually only just last decade's liberals. Therefore, resistance is not enough to stave off totalitarianism. We must not just resist it when it becomes too much for us. We have to push back. And we must have a goal to which we're pushing towards. You see, you can't beat something with nothing. So you must also have an idea of what you're pushing back towards and what you're going to build in place. So... More on that, perhaps in another episode, but here are eight lessons Christians should learn from Nazi Germany. Lesson one, reject two kingdoms theology. One of the strategies from early on by Hitler was to marginalize the church so that there would be no Christian influence on government policy. He sought to make worship a private matter, not something for the public sphere. Religion must be kept out of politics at all costs, and the state policy must be determined by humanistic and naturalistic principles so that Hitler could do what was best for the German people. And of course, the Fuhrer knew what was best. He said that the churches must be forbidden from interfering with temporal matters. The state would have to be scrubbed clean of all Christian convictions and values. This was helped along also by the teaching of two kingdoms theology in the German Lutheran Church. Now, this was originally conceived by Martin Luther and then developed and adopted by the Lutheran Church, as well as many other Protestant denominations. In fact, today, many evangelicals knowingly or unknowingly subscribe to this unbiblical doctrine. The two kingdoms theology, it posits that there are two spheres in the world, 
the sacred and the secular, the common and, you know, Christ's kingdom. Christ is only Lord of the church, right? Like the ecclesial uh, sphere. But Caesar is, in a manner of speaking, Lord over the political and public sphere, right? That's the common kingdom. And each must stay in their lane. The church was never to interfere with the state nor the state with the church. But this doctrine went further. It also posited that the church should not seek to influence the sphere of the state. Allegiance to God was best demonstrated by allegiance to the state and obeying its dictates, you know, Romans 13 and all. And by the way, this episode that I have with Romans 13, unpacking that that is not what Romans 13 means. Go back and check it out. It's episode number three. Now, you can see how this primed the German people to fall prey to dictatorship. Even in believing German uh, evangelical churches who oppose the growing liberal theology of German higher criticism, these churches withdrew from those intellectual debates and decided to witness to the saving grace of Christ, which, by the way, is great. That's good. We need to do that. But they decided to do that and believed that the church's mission was only limited to the ecclesiastical sphere, meaning the church. The Christian's only job was to preach personal salvation in Christ. In order to inject spiritual life into the mainstream Lutheran church, uh, a healthy dose of pietism was actually emphasized within these churches. Faith was turned inwardly, focused only on personal holiness, personal spiritual disciplines of fasting, prayer, and Bible reading, which are good things, by the way, and ecclesial matters and other st- sort of spiritual stuff, right? Uh, but outwardly, on social and uh, political issues of public life, never. There was no uh, focus at all on that. By insisting that their faith was private, This sort of pietism had little to no effect against the Nazi tide that washed over Germany. And much like today's pietists, they had no influence against the rise of government overreaches and social issues. This is where a lot of the evangelical church finds itself today. Of course, this holy high-mindedness was a great asset to Hitler. He said to the church leaders, quote, You confine yourselves to the church. I'll take care of the German people. This sort of two kingdoms theology still exists and is popular today and it must be rooted out. If Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. They are not two kingdoms, but one. The cross, resurrection, and ascension guarantees this, that Christ is reigning now, given all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, and he lays claim to every square inch. This gospel of the kingdom is the gospel the church must reclaim. Christ reigns not just over the church, but over nations, and they must be discipled to him and taught to obey all that he has commanded. That's what the Great Commission says. According to the New Testament interpretation of Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the Bible, um, Christ right now sits at the right hand of God, where he reigns from on high and rules in the midst of his enemies. And you can see, for example, in the New Testament, how the New Testament authors interpreted that psalm from Matthew 22, verse 44, from Jesus himself, and in Acts 2, verses 34 to 35, from the Apostle Peter, uh, from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, and Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 22, and the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1, 13, 10, uh, chapter 10, 12 to 13, and chapter 12, verse 2. Now, the church cannot abdicate her calling as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. We must not give up the public sphere to pagans, for they will only do with it what pagans do. You can't expect pagans to to form a rightly ordered biblical state. We must bear witness to God's reign in every sphere and how he's designed it to function according to his law word. 
The Bible speaks to God's ordering of every sphere of society, including politics and government. Second lesson for us to learn. Don't settle for the guise of freedom. Don't settle for the guise of freedom. Now keep in mind that everything that happened in pre-Nazi Germany and leading up to the Third Reich happened under code words such as freedom, peace, and fairness. Erwin Lutzer in his book notes, the people were assured that these changes were made with their best interests in mind. The greater good of Germany eclipsed individual freedoms and right to opposition. Everyone was expected to be in sync with the accepted cultural values and goals. Those who opposed the regime paid a price. Now, does this sound familiar to you from the past two years? How many individual freedoms have been taken and the right to opposition and challenging the prevailing narrative squashed? Thousands have lost jobs because of their stance for bodily autonomy. Thousands more have been silenced, shunned, shamed, deplatformed, and gaslit. Anybody who dared speak out and challenge the science, even when they themselves were expert scientists, medical practitioners, and independent researchers. Now, it's been noted that the media does more than affect public opinion. It alters the consciences and worldview of entire generations. We've seen today a technocracy enforce some of the hardest speech codes and play the Ministry of Truth on today's information superhighways and, and social media. And other work corporations shut down the funding of conservatives or anyone daring to challenge the accepted orthodoxy. There's no need for heresy trials and burnings. In today's digital world, the bloodless witch hunts and gulags may not take your life, but they still take your livelihood. In the US, John Whitehead recently observed this, quote, Citizens increasingly feel powerless to act. Indeed, modern governments often pose a threat more serious than the older ones because government has become even more pervasive. The modern welfare state controls more and more of the totality of life, often in response to the demands of its citizens that it do so. The fact that our welfare state has grown so big is not good, good news for liberty. For no one dares to bite the hand that feeds them. And if the government is feeding a majority of its people, then who would dare mount a resistance to its tyranny? Yet many today can't even imagine a society without a welfare state. That's how far down the hole we've gone and how far we've drifted from God's design for government. We don't even remember and can't even conceive of anything different. Again, Lutz's comments from his book of Very Appropriate, he says, quote, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of his victims may be the most oppressive. Those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. In reality, however, we must face the possibility of bad rulers armed with humanitarian theory of punishment. We know that one school of psychology already regards religion as a neurosis. When this particular neurosis becomes inconvenient to government, what is to hinder government from proceeding to cure it? Such a cure will, of course, be compulsory. But under the humanitarian theory, it will not be called by the shocking name of persecution. And this is what we've seen happening in our days. Doublespeak labeling legitimate concerns as conspiracy theories or misinformation aim at curing things inconvenient to these governments who grow increasingly totalitizing by the day. For the past two years, concerns over safety and efficacy of COVID vaccines have been raised by legitimate scientists, researchers, and medical practitioners only to be labeled as misinformation and squashed without any fair hearing. Now, although some of this info is starting to come out in the mainstream because there's only so long that you can cover up a lie, but 
it's important to know that instead of rigorous dialogue and debate, which what which is what should have happened, silencing of all opposition and challenges to accepted narratives was done through deplatforming, shadow banning, and perpetual ignorance, all in the name of the good of the people and public health. The progression down the same path is there. Though it's slightly adapted in its form and at a different pace perhaps than back in Nazi Germany. This is not to say, though, that we'll end up in the same place as Nazi Germany. But one of the functions of reading history is to learn from its mistakes instead of repeating it. Martin Niemöller, who is a pastor and theologian and who was seeing what was coming in Germany, in a sermon in 1934 to his church, he said this, We have all of us, the whole church and the whole community, we've been thrown into the tempter's sieve, and he is shaking and the wind is blowing, and it must now become manifest whether we are wheat or chaff. Verily, a time of sifting has come upon us, And even the most indolent and peaceful person among us must see that the calm of a meditative Christianity is at an end. It is now springtime for the hopeful and expectant Christian church. It is testing time and God is giving Satan a free hand so he may shake us up and so that it may be seen what manner of men we are. Satan swings his sieve and Christianity is thrown hither and thither. And he who is not ready to suffer, he who has called himself a Christian only because he is thereby hoped to gain something good for his race and his nation, is blown away like chaff by the wind of time. I believe that we're again in a time of great sifting. We've seen it uh, even at the local level in our churches, as the past two years have driven some away from the faith and drawn others in. The trials of pandemic life have shaken many and many things to reveal what stands and on what solid foundation it stands and what does not. And there's more coming. Hebrews 12 says that at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As things are shaken, that which cannot stand is toppled to reveal that which is on sure foundation. Christ's kingdom is the only sure foundation. It's a kingdom that extends from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth, over kings and princes and governments, over all people, spheres and authorities. So, let's seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Third lesson we must learn. We must love true freedom. So, we must reject the guise of freedom, but we must love true freedom. You might ask, how is it that a whole people would become, would welcome actually, such a dictatorship as in Germany? Germany was poised for the rise of Hitler. Had situations been any different, perhaps Hitler might have been forgotten uh, in history and we would have never known him. But the aftermath of the First World War and the economic devastation in Germany set the stage for a population ripe to embrace a political figure who posed as their savior with promises of a prosperous and powerful Germany. When many in Germany had uh, experienced massive hyperinflation and the wiping out of their businesses and life savings, the promise of security sounded really, really alluring. Gerald Suster writes this, he says, quote, many welcomed the abolition of individual responsibility for one's actions. 
For some, it is easier to obey than to accept the dangers of freedom. Workers now had, good, had job security, a health service, cheap holiday schemes. If freedom meant starvation, then slavery was preferable. Many today would also rather have someone higher up make the decisions for them or provide a social safety net for their bad decisions. The nanny state, with its bloated welfare system, is a modern incarnation of this. If we want to live truly free, we must also accept personal responsibility. With great freedom comes great responsibility. But some shirk at responsibility and so choose the safety of slavery. It is far more comfortable to let the state handle your retirement and pension and social insurance than to exercise financial responsibility, wise investment and planning for the future. And this is also why the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab, who looks kind of like a James Bond villain and sounds like one too. I don't know why anyone follows that guy. Anyways, this is why the WEF can be so bold as to tell the public openly that their vision for the future is that you will own nothing and be happy. Yet, when you do so, when you give over that level of control of your future uh, to the state and to this welfare system, they're going to hold you hostage by it. If the state holds your retirement plan, then you better not get on its wrong side. A dependent population is an easily controlled population. Benjamin Franklin is quoted as saying, quote, Any society that would give up a little liberty to gain a little security will deserve neither and lose both. Those words ring true today as ever before. In the name of safety, many people willingly gave up massive amounts of freedom, which were won at the end of a rifle barrel with the blood of thousands who counted liberty more valuable than their lives. And at that, for a virus that was only a major threat to a small percentage of the population. Generations past that went off to wars, suffered through the Great Depression and endured real plagues would rightly scoff at us for such softness. This is not to say that we should be wantonly reckless. There is a right place for prudence and for wisdom, especially in protecting the vulnerable. But the compliance of the majority of the population of many nations with an indefinite suspension of fundamental rights without adequate justification from the governments, that's quite alarming. It has been said that tough times make tough men, who make prosperous times, which makes soft men, which makes tough times, and, well, we're in that cycle again. Fourth lesson that we must learn is that we must speak up. Again, Martin E. Muller's famous words are haunting. He says this, quote, First they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the tra trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. One of the things which led to the dictatorship in Germany was the failure of the church and citizens who did see what was going on and what was going wrong, it was their failure to speak up. Eberhard Beth, who is uh, the friend of the famous Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this, quote, Though we would preach Christ alone Sunday after Sunday, during the whole time the Nazi state never considered it necessary to prohibit such preaching. And why should it? And so it became clear where the problem lay for the confessing church. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. Many churches and Christians are content just to confine themselves to pietistic pursuits, forming Christian ghettos and never speaking out publicly against the ills of the day. Yet, if we are the salt and light of the world, wherever Christian influence retreats will inevitably 
become dark and start decaying. We must stand as watchmen, not asleep and not afraid to raise the alarm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, quote, The sin of respectable people reveals itself in flight from responsibility. And as that old maxim goes, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Speak up. Speak truthfully. Speak lovingly and graciously. Speak with your friends and neighbors. Speak with your co-workers and classmates. Write and call your government representatives and express your concerns and propose solutions. You will be surprised how many people don't do this and how much of an audience you might gain with your local representatives. Start especially at the lower level officials, mayors, ward councillors, school boards, town halls, etc. Many people neglect this sort of engagement. So any engagement by Christians especially, even in a small way, can make a big difference. Speaking up may cost you. I'm not ignorant of that. It may cost you, and it may cost you dearly. I'm not going to say it's easy, but whoever promised an easy Christian life? Christ surely didn't. Fifth thing that we can learn from Nazi Germany is don't support big government. Don't support big government. The trend in our days is towards bigger and bigger government. The size of our government budgets and national debts attest to the fact that many governments are doing far more than they should. The Bible's role for government is quite limited, mainly in the area of justice and national defense. Yet, today's governments are doing a whole host of other things that they were never meant to do with money they, don't, they either don't have or they've procured through uh, coercive and unjust taxation. Thomas Jefferson was right when he said, the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity under the name of funding is but swindling futurity on a large scale. And yet, because governments are rewarded for spending and punished for cutting back, it is almost as if our leaders are swiping our personal credit cards to get votes. Remember again this one maxim. The government doesn't have money. The government has your money. Many people today don't realize this as they vote for the candidate that promises them the most money and benefits. They're actually voting for a form of mugging. The government takes taxes by threat of the state's coercive powers to then redistribute it. You are not entitled to someone else's money, no matter how noble the cause. Legalized stealing is still theft nonetheless. The government did what God commands it to do, and only that which the Bible gives it to do, we would have a massively smaller state and massively lower taxes too. Yet this is unimaginable to many today who take our current bloated states for granted. However, to get there, we would also need a population that takes personal responsibility and charity seriously, as well as many other important changes to how we think about rightly ordering society. And don't get me wrong, <laughs> I am not uh, ignorant to the fact that we're not going to get there overnight, but we definitely won't get there at all without a target to aim at. Now, Ern Lutzer notes that we can learn from history that politicians often use an economic crisis to make their subjects more government dependent. And with that dependency comes more control. And that's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. The more government controls more areas of your life, the more loss of liberty we experience and the more loss of work ethic amongst the population too. You see this very clearly in communistic countries that set wages and where government was the main employer. The public sector is never geared to be productive or efficient because it has no motivation to do so. Whereas in the private free market capitalism, uh, if a company is not uh, productive or efficient, it'll die because it just won't make a profit. 
You see, if the government service doesn't make a profit or isn't productive, it suffers no consequence since the government can simply keep it afloat through taxation. The more that politicians control the income of the population, the more people are dependent on the government and the more willing they are to bow to its demands. By way of illustrating this, the government of Canada is the largest employer in Canada. Let that sit on you. History has shown that no government has ever had a great record of, expa of expanding benefits without also demanding more control of its citizens. Freedom is lost by the promise of more ease. Yet socialistic policies ultimately only bring devastation and end in demise. Christians should seek to vote for candidates and policies that will incrementally downsize the state. They should also do what they can to reduce its size by not supporting government services when alternative private services are available, and also by not giving their workforce to the public sector in areas that God has not given to the government. Now, if you're already in the public sector and in, a, in an area that does not biblically belong to the government, then prayerfully consider how you might either bring reform to that from the inside or move to the outside, taking your skill set to, to the proper sphere that God has designated for it. Sixth lesson that we can learn is don't divorce faith and politics. Biblical law scholar R.J. Rushduni has observed that behind every system of law, there is a God. He wrote this, quote, if the source of law is the individual, then the individual is the God of that system. If the source of law is our court, then the court is our God. If there is no higher law beyond man, then man is his own God. When you choose your authority, you choose your God. And when you look for your law, there is your God. Our modern laws show us where our society's God is, and is definitely not the God of Scripture. We worship many other things and perhaps most significantly ourselves. However, this loss of worship of the triune God of Scripture in civil society has major ramifications. Now, while some claim that Hitler was a Christian, he was anything but, he was actually anti-Christian to the core and hated the church. Ultimately, Hitler hated God and his embrace of naturalistic Darwinian philosophy led to his belief in creating the Superman from the Aryan race, which he thought would be the zenith of evolution. Nazi Germany's laws flowed from this rejection of the true God, and every society's law reflects its God. So, if God does not exist, then there is no objective and unchanging basis for transcendent laws or fundamental rights. If, the, you know, if then all laws are just relative and every country just decides for itself what it thinks is right without an appeal to a transcendent source, then we actually have no basis for criticizing the Nazis apart from our own personal preferences. And this was exactly the challenge faced at the Nuremberg trials of Nazi criminals after World War II. They claimed, the Nazis, that they had done nothing wrong according to German law, and thus could not be convicted. So then an appeal to a higher law than the laws of Germany at the time had to be made in order to convict them. You see, only an appeal to God and his revelation of his perfect standards of law and justice can provide a universal law by which all countries can be judged and that is binding on all people at all times everywhere. Yet, many Christians want to separate religion from politics and God from government. But when that is done, we are forced to accept arbitrary laws of men. Either God is our lawgiver or man is. Either God is supreme or the state will happily take his place. This is why Christianity in the public sphere is so essential to the preservation of freedom. There is a separation of church and state, but there is no separation of God and government because God reigns over all. U.S. President 
Benjamin Franklin, who he was a deist, but he offered this famous acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in the affairs of men. He wrote this, quote, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Franklin was at least right in that. He and many others of the U.S. and Canadian founding fathers understood that principle well. John Warwick Montgomery adds this. He says, quote, This generation is not accidental. Each step logically follows from what has preceded. The loss of the Bible leads to the loss of God. For in the Bible, God is most clearly revealed. The loss of God leaves man at the naked mercy of his fellows, where might makes right. We did not inherit our modern Western systems of democracies and freedoms by accident. This is the inheritance of Christians who had no qualms about bringing their faith to bear in the public square. They produced the freest and most prosperous nations the world has ever known. We have to restore these foundations and go even further than they did to build a biblically consistent society based on God's word. Seventh, seventh lesson that we can learn from Nazi Germany is to be critical thinkers. You know, there's a phenomenon at play in society of, of you know, cultural currents. And this is when a dominant idea is promoted by the media and adopted by a large percentage of the population who believe the myth to be true. They believe it so badly that they close their minds to all contrary evidence. It's a type of groupthink. When this gains sufficient momentum, people will stare at facts and filter out what they don't want to believe or are afraid to believe. Evidence that contradicts the accepted narrative will be ignored or reinterpreted. The more people in the population that believe the myth, the harder and harder it will become for people to oppose it. And before you know it, we're in a world where facts don't matter. This happened in Germany. This is still happening today. The Nazi party expertly used propaganda to sway the masses. You see, media captivates people into narratives and stories that take hold of their imaginations and hearts. And what the heart loves, the mind will justify and the will will pursue. Now, no wonder Hitler said, quote, how fortunate for the governments that the people they administer don't think. Richard Terrell wrote this, quote, create a critical mass of people who cannot discern meaning and truth from nonsense, and you will have a society ready to fall for the first charismatic leader to come along. And this is, this is exactly what we have today. Our government-run schools no longer teach how to think. They teach what to think. Long gone are the days when classical logic was a required course in schooling. Now, a modern example will serve to illustrate this clearly. The gay rights movement decided that they needed to utilize propaganda to change the way society thought about them. They intentionally utilized Hitler's strategies to accomplish this. Eric Poehler, the founder of ACT UP, which is a militant homosexual group, openly stated that Hitler's Mein Kampf was the model that they used for their strategy, which included lies and intimidation. Hitler said that it was better to tell a big lie than a small one. In addition to this strategy was the technique of gaslighting and shaming. Their goal was to make gays look good and people who opposed the movement as nasty, mean, and hateful so that people would want to disassociate themselves from such types. 
Thus, they never conceded, even in the slightest, that someone could be against gay mirage because of legitimate you know, religious beliefs or natural law or concerns for the good of societies, families, and children. Instead, they called their, their opponents by names such as bigots, right-wing radicals, Nazis, hate mongers, etc. Right? Homophobic. Uh, this labeling, though, caused others to distance themselves from such people. Language was used to stifle rational discussion and thought. It was jamming techniques similar to what Hitler used in his propaganda. Alan Sears and Craig Austin write this, quote, On a daily basis across America, but more prevalent in some areas of the country than others, children as young as kindergarten are being told that their parents are stupid or bigots or intolerant if they do not accept and embrace homosexual behavior as normal or even something to be celebrated. In some classes, children are even recruited to promote gay pride marches and events. Thus, the LGBTQ movement has been enormously successful at changing the, and, and shaping public perceptions. It doesn't matter if people don't actually believe it in their hearts. If they shut up publicly about proposing any opposition and acquiesce to the pinch of incense on the altar of diversity, equity, and inclusion, they've won. And this is why Christians need to regain classical approaches to education and logic. Christians who have gone through the public school system need to realize that many of them would have been robbed of this sort of education and have to learn it themselves. For parents, teach your kids and take responsibility for their education. And this leads to our next point. Our last and final lesson to learn in this episode from Nazi Germany is reject state-run education. If the state controls the education of the future populace, it controls everything. We should not be surprised that if we give our kids to Caesar, that they soon come home as Romans. Hitler made it a point to make public school education compulsory. But of course, this was marketed as free education for all. But we know that nothing is free. Remember, the government doesn't have money, it has your money. And the cost of this is far too high in the long run. In almost every totalitarian government, state-sponsored education served the purpose of indoctrination of the future voter base. And this is an area that the political left has done exceptionally well in. Many of the institutions of learning have been radically infiltrated and controlled by leftists. However, even with this history, it's perhaps surprising and ironic that in Germany today, homeschooling is illegal. Here in North America, there's a similar push by some in government to do the same. Something which Hitler did in 1938 was to abolish homeschooling and to make government-run education mandatory. He knew exactly what he was doing. He said this, quote, The youth of today is ever the people of tomorrow. For this reason, we have set before ourselves the task of inoculating our youth with the spirit of this community of the people at, the, at a very early age, at an age when human beings are still unperverted and therefore unspoiled. This Reich stands, and it is building itself up for the future upon its youth. And this new Reich will give its youth to no one. See, he thought that the youth was his own. But, it, but will itself take youth and give to youth its own education and its own upbringing? You see, Hitler couldn't be more clear. He said this, quote, German youth must no longer be confronted with the choice of whether they wish to grow up in a spirit of materialism or idealism or of racism or of internationalism, of religious or godlessness. Uh, they must be con consciously shaped according to the principles which are recognized as correct, according to the principles and ideology of national socialism. You see, Hitler made sure that the educational philosophy in the German schools was no longer concerned with whether a matter was true or false. 
but rather whether it was useful to attain the goals of his Reich. Today, the Canadian government education and many other national educational priorities uh, emphasize ideology over truth, such as, you know, how many genders there are, for example. There's a reason why a dude in a dress is teaching little Johnny how to read. Hitler wanted to replace the values children received from their parents with those that benefited the Reich. This is still going on today in government education, although in different forms. The goals are still the same. They promote ideologies that destabilize the family because the family is the biggest threat to a totalitarian state, because the family is where future men and dragon slayers are to be raised. You see, why would a state that desires more control want to teach its citizens how to think critically to make it more difficult for them to control them? Why would the state want to teach children what their fundamental rights are and where they come from? I've been appalled by the number of Canadians who were born, raised, and educated here in public schools who don't even know their own constitution, charter of rights, or understand their system of government. They were never taught the basics of government and economics in school. Is it any wonder then why people keep voting for the same ridiculous political policies? The same is true of many Americans. If you were trying to create a totalitarian state with a compliant citizenry, I don't know how else you would make it easier for yourself. A truly educated people are a difficult people to control. And thus, I don't think it's accidental that the quality of public education is generally so dismally poor despite incredibly gigantic funding. Private and Christian schools generally do far better with far less access to resources. Erwin Lutzer notes here that, quote, In Germany, there was an emphasis on teaching right attitudes using the cult of experience. Unlike knowledge that involves the intellect, experiences that involve feelings provided access to the deep truths of Nazism, which were essentially based on ideological unity. The greatest threats to a totalitarian state are a strong church, strong families, and self-controlled individuals. This is because these are the building blocks of a free society. So then, it is in their interest to promote things that weaken those institutions, such as sexual perversion and pornography. Porn addiction and sexual promiscuity destroys integrity, creates shame, destabilizes family, effeminizes men, and makes for an easier-to-control populace. Divide and conquer is the name of this game. Thus, it is to the advantage of the dictators to have a sexually addicted culture. You ever wonder why some blatantly criminal pornographers and websites run openly in public without major crackdowns, yet the taxman can somehow find a guy who's cheated on his taxes in the far corners of the forest? Many parents have no clue what is being taught to their children in their classrooms and schoolyards. Sex ed classes are often little more than a how-to on having sex without guilt and without babies. In North Carolina, for example, the seven-point list that teachers are told to install in, Christian, in children include this, quote, there is no right and wrong, only conditioned responses. Two, collective good is more important than the individual. Three, consensus is more important than principle. Four, flexibility is more important than accomplishment. Five, nothing is permanent except change. Six, all ethics are situational and there are no moral absolutes. And seven, there are no perpetrators, only victims. Now, this is not just something that's happening in the U.S. It's also happening in Canadian public schools. Um, Pierre Barnes, who is a father of four, uh, has been doing some extensive research on books that are currently being normalized in some public schools in Canada. 
this is thanks to some of the controversial sexual orientation and gender identity agendas like SOGI 123 curriculum, that's S-O-G-I 123, uh, that's being used in some public schools in Canada. Actually, if you look up the website Exposing Sogi 123, that's Exposing S-O-G-I 123, the number is 123.com, you'll see on the book reviews a lot of the books that are being used in Canadian uh, schools and libraries uh, to teach this radical sexual identity, uh, gender identity curriculum to um, young kids in schools, um, some as young as in kindergarten in some cases. Uh, some examples of these books are uh, Gender Queer or The Gender Book. Um, another book is called All Boys Aren't Blue. And one particularly that's called It's Perfectly Normal has a bunch of pictures illustrated of different sex acts. Um, and it's quite graphic. There's um, illustrations of adults masturbating and performing heterosexual and homosexual acts on each other. And this is being um, used in public schools to teach kids about um, sexuality and oftentimes without parents' um, knowledge. In fact, there was a case uh, not too long ago in BC uh, of a about um, four and five-year-old children in a junior kindergarten class that were sent home with a masturbation assignment. That's nuts. If you don't believe that this isn't happening right now, then just go to the website exposingsogi123.com and just check out some of the uh, resources that are there. This sort of stuff is nothing less than child grooming. Many parents today say they can't afford to take their kids out of public school, but in the future they won't be able to afford to take the public school out of their kids. So with the dangers that lay there, perhaps the better question is, can you afford not to take them out? Now I know that different people's situations are different, and there are you know instances of like single parents and so on that would require different counsel. But I'm speaking in generalities, so forgive me. These are tough decisions to make in tough times. However, I hope that you see that some of these points that I've covered here play into the factors that can culminate into the loss of freedoms and slip us into totalitarianism once again. We are only ever one generation away. Tough times call for tough men. Let's wrap this up. I realize that many will find this content offensive or challenging or perhaps even impossible. That's okay. You can even disagree with some of my conclusions. However, we all should take a look at the mistakes of history and aim not to repeat them. But most of all, we cannot remain passive and do nothing. Inform yourself, think critically and biblically, make a plan and live intentionally. Buy some books by godly men who have thought through these things biblically. Surround yourself with other like-minded men who can sharpen you. Lone wolves will get plucked off first in this. It is of utmost importance that this start in the church. For judgment must begin in the house of the Lord. We have to set our own houses in order, and then the Lord's house, the church, before we can ever hope to set our national house straight. So pray, then take action. Sometimes the gospel has to be communicated with more than just words. Michael Baumgarten, a 19th century Lutheran pastor who was excommunicated from his church, wrote this. He said, quote, There are times in which lectures and publications no longer suffice to communicate the necessary truth. At times, at such times, the deeds and sufferings of the saints must create a new alphabet in order to reveal again the secret of truth. The times ahead may bring much costly sacrifice as we see Christ's kingdom firstly. However, our Lord has promised to us his presence, power, and good pleasure for our faithfulness.
So let us aim to please the one who has enlisted us. I hope that this episode has given you some points to think through. If it has, please consider sharing it on social media or with your friends. Until next time, soli deo gloria. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.